Well, good morning, Calvary. Good morning, everyone in Quakertown and everyone watching online. It's great to be together this morning. My name is Jason, and I get to serve here at Calvary as one of our student pastors, so it's really fun for me to be with you this morning. And as we start, I want to ask us a question. How many of us kind of subscribe to this idea that everything happens for a reason? Anybody? Yeah, probably a lot of us. All right. How many of us subscribe to this idea because it's the only way we can make sense of the infuriating things that happen in our lives? Anyone? Yeah. So that's where I stand on the uh, everything happens for a reason. Uh, over the summer, my wife and I had a trip we were really excited about. We were going to California for a wedding. And it was one of my best friends. He's the best man at my wedding. And so we're really excited. We're going out for a full week. We're going to spend some time with friends that I don't get to see very often. Really looking forward to this trip for quite some time. And so we're all packed up, ready to go. Cars packed. We had an early flight. It's a long flight to California. So pack the car up and we're driving early in the morning. And we're driving not too far uh, from our house. And we hear this weird kind of noise. Kind of sounded like a flat tire. <clears throat> Tire gauge wasn't on, nothing was on. I'm like, you know, I'm being paranoid. I'm, I've been looking forward to this trip. I'm just being way too paranoid. So as we keep driving, it's like, yeah, that really sounds like a flat tire. So I pull, I'm like, you know what? I'm not risking it. You know, we have another car that we can easily put the luggage in. This is not worth the risk. So I pull into a neighborhood and turn around. And instead of going left to my house, I'm like, you know what? No, I'm being paranoid. I'm being paranoid. So I turn right. You guys laugh. Last service did the same thing. It seems like you know where the story is going. So we're driving, sounds getting worse, but again, no tire pressure gauge is on in the car. So I, I, I pull into a parking lot and this time I actually get out of the car to look at the tires. Tires seem fine. There's no flat tires. It's, it's, it looks fine. No tire pressure gauge. Like I said, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'm being paranoid. And so we pull out, I go, go to the turnpike and I don't know, not 20 seconds on 476. We have a flat tire. So I pull over, it's clear as day, we have a flat tire, and I get out of the car, and what I didn't mention earlier was, it was raining. So we're on, right on 476, right off the Lansdale exit, and I get out of the car, it is raining, and there's a very flat tire, and there are cars going very fast right by us, because it is the highway. So we were like, you know what, my initial thought is to panic, because I'm a worrier, and uh, I'm like, you know what, we, we have plenty of time, we budgeted plenty of time for this flight. Like, we'll be able to change this. We can, we can put the, the spare on. We'll get to the airport. This will be no problem. So we get out the car jack. The car's jacked in the air. We get the lug nuts off, try to pull the tire off, and it's not coming off. The tire is just not coming off. And it got to the point where my wife's like, you know what, maybe stop trying, because if you slip off, you're going to go into oncoming traffic. So eventually, this uh, highway patrol guy comes and goes, you know what, your, your wheel is rusted on. Awesome. He's like, so what you're going to need is a mallet to hammer it off. I'm like, great. He's like, I don't have one. Incredible. So he has to wait. So we end up missing our flight. I was going to say long story short. Not true. That was a long story. Missed our flight. So my wife's awesome. She calls. We end up getting put on a new flight. We got the, no, there was no upcharge. They were super gracious about the last two. But so because I, you know, everything happens for a reason. I was convinced God did not want us on that flight. And because I'm evil, don't judge me. I go oh my gosh, is that flight going to crash? <laughs> like, God saved our lives. And thankfully, that's not what happened. The flight did land safe, safely. But I'm like, well, there must be another reason then, obviously, because God would not just allow this to happen. Like, it was God's fault I had a flat tire. So uh, we get on our other flight. I fall asleep right away, and I wake up to the flight attendants, like, running past me, like, running past me. I'm like, what's happening? 
Take off my headphones over the loudspeaker. If we have any healthcare professionals on the flight, can you please come to the front? And I kind of like grip my armrest. I'm like, this is it. Like, <laughs> this is it. This is what God had for me on this flight. And it turns out like it was no big deal and the lady was fine. We landed in LA. I have no clue why I was on that flight. It was just the only way I could make sense in my head of this infuriating situation that it had to have happened for a reason. And we're in this series where we're calling Out for Delivery, where we're talking about these Old Testament characters, people that lived before Jesus and what their stories and what their lives do to help us look towards Christmas and see kind of uh, how the Old Testament was moving towards Christmas and how that kind of intersects with our life today. And today we're going to talk about the story of Esther. And Esther is a story where if you, you look at the, the parts of the story in a vacuum, the, the parts of the story seem a little bit insignificant. But when you look at the picture as a whole, you can kind of see what God was doing and where God was moving and how it does indeed point to Christmas. And so to, to understand how Esther helps us better understand Christmas, we do have to talk about the entire story, the entire book of Esther. But before we even do that, I want us to see where Esther fits into the story of the Bible as a whole. The Bible is one story and every part of the Bible kind of helps that story come together. And so I want us to see where Esther falls into the story of the Bible as a whole to help us better understand it. And so here at Calvary, we talk about the storyline of the Bible. The Bible has six kind of acts to the story. And so the Bible kind of starts with God creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things. He created mankind, Adam and Eve. And unfortunately, they disobeyed God. They rejected God. And so there was broken there was, there was tension, there was conflict in our relationship with God. And so God had to provide a solution to restoring that brokenness again. And so God makes a promise to, to bless his people. He creates this group of people that are his people. The Old Testament calls them the Israelites, or we know them maybe as the Jewish people. And he, he makes them a promise. Hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to restore relationship with you again. And so the rest of the Old Testament is the story of this group of people. And so not long after God makes them a promise, they find themselves in slavery and God eventually rescues them from slavery. And he brings them into this place called the promised Land. And so they're living in this, this city of Jerusalem and eventually a world superpower, Babylon, comes into Jerusalem, totally destroys the city and takes all of the people with them. So now these people, the God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, their city of Jerusalem, their hometown was destroyed. They're taken into captivity um, by Babylon and now they're living in Babylon. Well, eventually the king of Babylon, whose name was Cyrus, let some of the, the Israelites go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild their lives a little bit, but he didn't let all of them go. Some of them had to remain in Babylon. And so Esther uh, is one of the, the Jewish people that is remaining in Babylon after some of her, her people got to go back home. And so that's the book of Esther is about what's going on in Esther's life and in, and in Babylon after some of the Jewish people got sent home. And so the, the king that takes over for King Cyrus is King Xerxes. And the book of Esther starts with the queen, Queen Vashti, refusing one of the king's orders. And so she gets punished for refusing his orders. And so the book of Esther starts with King Xerxes looking for a new queen. And so he creates a search for a new queen. Here's what it says in Esther chapter 2. Later, when King's fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. <clears throat> then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. 
Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was a guy named Mordecai who was a Jew in exile in Babylon, and he was raising his cousin named Hadassah. That was her Jewish name. Her Babylonian name was Esther. And Esther, um, Esther catches the eye of the king's attendants. She's taken to the king and eventually she wins his favor and becomes queen. However, she keeps many aspects of her identity a secret. She doesn't tell the king who her family is, her family of origin. She doesn't reveal her Jewish heritage or her Jewish faith. She keeps those things private, but she wins the favor of the king and becomes queen. Now, Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin who raised her, made it a habit of sitting at the king's gate. Here's what it says about Mordecai. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit So Mordecai. So Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate, hears about an assassination attempt on the king's life. And he tells Esther, who tells the king, gives Mordecai the credit, and the king's life is saved. Now Xerxes had someone in his cabinet named Haman. He was one of the, the highest officials in the king's court. And he hated Mordecai. Hated Mordecai. And the reason why was Haman, because he was so well-established, he was so respected. Every time he walked by, people would, would kneel to him, everybody except Mordecai. And some people noticed that Mordecai wouldn't kneel before Haman. And so they told Haman, hey, Haman, that dude Mordecai doesn't kneel before you. And they also mentioned to Haman that Mordecai was a Jew. So to Haman, this Jewish person named Mordecai refuses to do what everyone else does and kneel before you. That's why he hated Mordecai. So Haman responds in this way, Esther chapter three. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman's response is, I hate Mordecai so much, I can't settle for just killing Mordecai. I want to kill all of Mordecai's people. I want to kill all of the Jewish people in Babylon. And they eventually decide to do it, and King Xerxes signs off on it. He gives his stamp of approval. So Mordecai eventually catches wind that this idea was was proposed and that it was signed off on, and he's understandably devastated, and he is weeping once again at the king's gate, and it's there that he has this conversation with Esther. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of the sackcloth, and he would not, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathik, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathik went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict of their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathik went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. 
Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the ho- do not think because that you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and the deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai tells Esther, Esther, you have to tell the king about this. You have to tell the king this is going on and you have to try and stop this. And Esther responds and says, Mordecai, you don't understand. If I'm not invited into the king's presence, if I go to him without an invitation, he will kill me. And Mordecai responds to Esther by saying, listen, Esther, if you don't go to the king, he's going to kill you anyway because you are only going to be able to hide your identity from him for so long. But, but hey, uh, Mordecai also kind of says, but if you don't help deliver us, somebody else will. And the reason that Mordecai can say this is because Mordecai, like us, knows that God made a promise. The promise that God made to a guy named Abraham for the people of Israel, Mordecai knew of that promise. And he knew there's no way God's gonna let us be killed like this. He promised to save us. He promised to bless us. And so whether either you help us or not, but somebody else is going to, and if you don't, you will probably die. So Esther agrees and goes to see the king who allows her to enter his presence. And she invites him to a banquet. When she enters the king's presence, she invites the king and she invites Haman, her, the person who hates Mordecai, her cousin, to a banquet. And they agree, we're going to have it the next night. And that night, King Xerxes can't sleep. Here's what it says. That night, the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had just set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. 
Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So it just so happens the night before this banquet, King Xerxes can't sleep. And so what he does is he asks someone to read a record of his reign. And it's during that reading that he is reminded of what Mordecai did by saving his life. And he asks the question, well, did we ever honor Mordecai? And they hadn't. So he asks Haman, what should we do for someone I really want to honor? And Haman, being as arrogant as he was, assumed that the king was talking about him. And obviously we see he was talking about Mordecai. And so Haman, who ordered the Jews to be killed, is the one that's forced to honor Mordecai. So the next day, Xerxes and Haman, they go to Esther's banquet and Xerxes asks her what she needs. Here's what Esther says. The queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would, not, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now, this is the first time Esther identifies with the Jewish people. This is the first time the king knows, oh, Esther is, is an Israelite. She's a Jew. So this is the first time she reveals her identity to the king. And their conversation continues. King Xerxes asks Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman, who's sitting right there. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The, the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So Esther tells Xerxes the whole story. She exposes Haman for what he's done. The king sides with Esther and puts Haman to death for all he's done on the very thing he created to kill Mordecai. So the, the book of Esther finishes with King Xerxes reversing his edict to kill the Jews, him giving the Jews permission to protect themselves and attack anybody that tries to attack them, which they do. They end up attacking Haman's descendants. And the book ends with them creating this banquet called Purim, which is meant to be a celebration for all God did in delivering his people. That's Esther. Now I know what you're thinking. Sounds exactly like Christmas. Uh, when I think of Christmas, first things that come to my mind are genocide, impaling people on poles, queens refusing orders. Merry Christmas to all of us, right? Sounds exactly like Christmas. And we are gonna talk about some Christmas lessons 
that we can take away from the Esther story, but the, the, there is one important detail about the book of Esther that we need to understand that's gonna help us understand some Christmas lessons. And we don't really get this when we just do an overview of the book, but it's something that comes through if you read it in its entirety. And that is this, God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. God doesn't show up to speak to anybody. The word God is not even in the book. He's not referenced at all. There's no visions. There's no dreams. God does at at face value seems to be nowhere to be found in the book of Esther. And so it's only natural to read this book and hear this story and think, where is God working in all of this? What is God doing? Where is God when he seems to be so silent. And the first lesson that we can learn from Esther as it relates to Christmas actually has to do with the omission of God in Esther. And so we're going to talk about three takeaways um, that help us understand Christmas. And then I'm going to ask us three questions to consider as we move into this Christmas season. And the first Christmas lesson is this, God is at work even when he's silent. God is at work even when he's silent. Esther is this book about God's providence, about God providing, about God showing up and providing for his people. And there's a pastor that I like to listen to. His name is Steve Carter. And he he preached on this, uh, he preached on Esther a while ago. And he he made this really good point that I'm I'm gonna just steal. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Stealing his point. Um, Don't want you to think I'm smarter than I am. Um, I think some of the girls on my soccer team are here today, which is really cool. It means a lot to me that they came. I envision them sitting in their seats when I say, I don't want you to think I'm smarter than I am, thinking, yeah, not a problem. Um, (laughs) What's not going to be a problem for us. So it just so happens that King Xerxes rises to power. It just so happens that Queen Vashti refuses his order. It just so happens that Mordecai is Esther's caretaker. It just so happens that Esther from all the women in Babylon are brought to the king. It just so happens that Esther wins the king's favor. Now, where was God at work in Esther? It just so happens that Esther is made queen. And it just so happens that Mordecai finds out about an assassination attempt on King Xerxes' life. Just so happens that Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman. And it just so happens that people find out about this and tell Haman about it. It just so happens that Haman convinces Xerxes to kill the Jews. And it just so happens that Mordecai finds out about this. It just so happens that Esther decides to approach the king about it, even though she might be killed. It just so happens that Xerxes, even though he doesn't summon Esther, allows her to enter his presence. It just so happens that King Xerxes couldn't sleep one night. And it just so happens he decides to read about Mordecai saving his life. Now, where is God at work throughout Esther? It just so happens that Haman happens to be around when Mordecai reads this. And it just so happens that uh, Haman thinks Xerxes is talking about him. It just so happens that Haman is forced to honor Mordecai. And it just so happens that Esther throws a banquet for Mordecai or for Haman and Xerxes. It just so happens that Esther is able to tell Xerxes about what Haman has done. And it just so happens that Xerxes listens to, to Esther, Haman is killed and the Jews are saved. Now, I, I can't in good conscience read the book of Esther and not see God's provision all throughout the story. But it, again, at face value, he does seem to be silent. And in fact, it's not the last time God seems to be silent. 
See, the people of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament, God sends people to them to, to prophesy to them, to communicate to them, to communicate God's words to them, to, to warn them of things. And so um, the last prophet that God sends to his people's name is Malachi. And after Malachi comes, the last book of the Old Testament is called Malachi. There's 400 years of silence from God to his people. There's no more prophets, no more visions, no more dreams, Nothing. And so the people are left waiting, where is God in in this? But God was working. He was preparing. He was working behind the scenes until one day, it just so happens that a virgin teenager received word from an angel that she was pregnant. And the one she was pregnant with was the one God had promised about so long Ago. Friends, what I want us to understand this morning is this. Just because we can't hear God's words doesn't mean we can't see God's works. Just because we can't hear God's words doesn't mean we can't see God's works. And this can be really hard. I think a lot of us, we genuinely do want to hear from God. We want to know where to go, what to do, what God has for us. We want to know what's going on. We want to know how to make sense of the things that are going on in our lives. And I know that it can be hard in the moment to see what God is up to. And I want you to know that if you're in that season of like, yeah, I don't know what God is saying. I haven't heard from God. I want to hear from God. I know I want to know what's going on, but I just can't seem to hear from him. I want you to know that I'm with you in that. Uh, for a long time, not like that long, but since I was in college, I really wanted to be a dad. I was really, really excited to be a dad. I don't really know why, um, but I've just always looked forward to being a dad, uh, particularly of girls. I just love seeing girls and their dads. I just think it's, it's incredible. And as God would have it, uh, my wife and I have um, been navigating a season of infertility. And it's been going on for a while. We know why and, and what's going on. And I, I don't, I'd be lying if I told you I knew what God was doing. Now, I've been in a season where I've asked God what's going on. I've pleaded with God to provide, and I haven't heard um, from him. And so I don't know what's going on in, in your season. I don't know why it is you feel like you can't hear from God. I'm with you in that. And I'm trusting, I'm choosing to trust in the pain and the sadness. Like God has a plan. This plan is for our family's good and that nothing will be able to stop God's plans for our lives. And I don't know what's going on in your life, but I I can tell you that I know that nothing will be able to stop God's plan for your life either. And we know this because we have something the people of Esther don't we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus, in fact, did come to earth. We don't need to look to Esther to know that God's plan will work. We need to look to Christmas to see that God's plan will work. Attempted genocide couldn't stop God's plan for his people. Nothing could stop God's plan of sending his son to live and die for us. Nothing will be able to stop God's plan for your life. 
So we might not be able to hear from God. We might not be able to know in the moment what he's up to. But I want to encourage us to look for ways that God is working this Christmas season, even when we can't hear him. So my first question for us this morning is this, where has God been silent? And where might he be working in your life? The second Christmas lesson we can see is in the person of Esther herself. Uh, we see elements of the coming of Jesus and the story of Christmas in who Esther is. And it's important for us to, to see Esther is not this moral example for us to follow. She's actually quite the opposite. She lies about her identity to the king. She doesn't really do uh, anything courageous. It's interesting, if you've been here for a while, we just came out of a series talking about Daniel, who's in Babylon as well and does incredibly courageous things. Esther only does the right thing when Mordecai says, hey, if you don't do this, you're going to die. She's not a moral example for us to follow. But what she is, is an imperfect picture of the coming perfect savior, Jesus. And here's what I mean. God sent Esther to a particular point in history to accomplish his sovereign plan of saving his people. God sent Jesus to a particular point in history to accomplish his sovereign plan of saving his people eternally. In chapter four, when Mordecai's at the gate and him and Esther are having this conversation and Esther finally agrees to go to the king, here's what she says. If I perish, I perish. Well, what Jesus says is when I perish, you live. Esther unwillingly goes to the king knowing she might die to save her people. Jesus willingly goes to the cross knowing he's going to die to save his people. Esther imperfectly stands up for her people, pointing towards the one coming at Christmas who will stand up for his people perfectly. Esther also seeks to preserve her people by identifying with them, when she eventually saves her people by revealing her Jewish identity. Jesus is able to save us by putting on human flesh and identifying with us. And the result of both of these things is celebration. The result of Esther stepping into the story of her people and God rescuing them is they established this banquet called Purim to celebrate all God has done for them. And the result of Jesus stepping into our story and saving us so that we can have relationship with him and experience eternal life with him in heaven is celebration. And there's just one verse I want us to look at in Luke that communicates this. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. The result of God stepping into our story and saving us is celebration. So my next question for you this morning is this, whose story do you need to step into this Christmas so they can experience celebration? Who is someone you think God has placed in your life on purpose? Who is someone that's in your life that might need a little comfort, a little encouragement, that might be lonely this Christmas season? Who's someone you know that might not have any family around? It might be by themselves this holiday season and you want to invite them to be a part of what your family is doing. Who's someone that you want to invite to a Christmas service so they get to experience the gospel this Christmas? Whose story do you need to step into this Christmas so they can experience celebration? And our last Christmas lesson from the book of Esther is this. God is in the insignificant. God is in the insignificant. An insignificant event turns the tide for the Jews in the story of Esther. And it happens in chapter six. That night, the king couldn't sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. The tide of the fate of a group of people turns because the king couldn't sleep. And he reads what was 5th century BC Twitter, basically, is what happened. That's what saves the people. 
Xerxes being reminded of what Mordecai had done for him. Insignificant event. Not too dissimilarly, about 500 years later, a virgin teenager gives birth to a baby in a stable. From a distance, seems pretty insignificant. But like the insignificant event of Xerxes reading this account, turning the tide for the Jews, the quote-unquote insignificant event of Mary giving birth in a stable turns the tide for all of humanity forever. There's no such thing as insignificant with God. So my question, my last question for us this morning is this, where can you see God in the seemingly insignificant this Christmas season? Life can feel really mundane. It can feel really monotonous. It can feel like we're grasping at straws, trying to make meaning of all of it, trying to put all the pieces together. And sometimes it can be silly, like looking for a reason why you get bumped from a flight or why you get a flat tire. But God is in the insignificant. So where can we see him in that this Christmas season? Where has God been silent? And where might he be working? Whose story do you need to step into this Christmas so they can experience celebration? Where can you see God in seemingly insignificant this Christmas season? Esther, in imperfect ways, points to the perfection of the coming Savior on Christmas. And I think if we ask ourselves these questions, I think there's a chance we'll be able to see God at work in our lives more so now than any Christmas we've experienced before. Let me pray. God, thank you for pictures of people that help us better understand all Jesus has done for us. God, thank you that you step into our stories and save us. Thank you that you are always at work behind the scenes. God, I pray that for those of us who can't hear you right now, you open our eyes to what you're doing, not only in our own lives, but in the world around us then we might find hope in the fact that you fulfilled your promise, that Jesus did come, and that we can find encouragement and hope in that promise and in that truth. And it's your name we pray. Amen.